Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim Vibe podcast. My name is Afra Mansour and I am the deputy editor of the Muslim Vibe. Today I am joined by Narjas Mubalari, independent journalist, and Salim Qasim, the chief editor of the Muslim Vibe. This podcast will be discussing three things. First of all, Britain's counter-terrorist policy, prevent, and if it's working in the current political climate. Secondly, the United Nations making Wonder Woman the gender equality ambassador. And thirdly, the ethics of looking after our elderly and if we're failing to do so in our communities. Now, without further ado, guys, prevent. So firstly, this has come up again, hasn't it? Because of the Muslim Council of Britain mm-hmm. uh, coming out, from what I understand, putting an alternative counter-terrorism strategy mm-hmm. in for Britain. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so that's obviously reignited old questions that we've had for years and years and years about prevent. Um, for me, my main thing to say is to remember the lady, <laughs> that horrible politician who brought it all up. put yeah. some of the worst, some of the really worst parts of the prevent strategy into place is now our prime minister, and I think that's. Uh, not a good indication uh, in general over the years I think um, really prevent has seeped into the climate of so many aspects of our life even if we don't want to admit it I think a lot I think a lot of parts of society in Britain are a bit in denial about how much it has seeped into our education system employment I read this article that said um, it was a, it was a M, it was a parliamentary report about um, employment. So actually, Muslim women face three. Se- they have the highest unemployment. Three types they, of discrimination. Three, three yeah. types of discrimination. Yeah. Exactly, because they're Muslim, because they're women, and because they're ethnic minorities. And this parliamentary group reported that they couldn't speak to the community about this issue because the women thought that the that this um, research was actually to do with prevent, and that yeah. they were spying on them. So you know, even it when just it's shows you, it just shows you how bad it's got. Yeah. I wanted to ask actually, Afraid, from your experience, obviously having been a teacher previously at a Muslim school. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what was it like with dealing with prevent? I'm sure you must have had some prevent training, um, and then having to kind of deal with the kids. Were the kids aware of it? Well, I mean, how, how, you, how you stopped for for to, for prayers every day, so it wasn't like if a kid started praying suddenly you're going to report them, which yeah. other schools have done. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to know your thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, in 2014, we received some uh, prevent training. And what it did is it allowed for us to, you know, pick up the indicators, what to look out for if a child has become, quote unquote, more extremist. So, yeah, this idea of preying on time and things like that. I mean, it wasn't an issue per se because we do that. Can I ask, did they they specifically tell you that? Yes. So one of the pointers to look out for was if a child decides to put more love and veneration into the act of prayer. Um, And then because we broke every day during our lunch break for Salah, for prayer, um, I mean, it wasn't something that we could really identify and pick up on. But um, it did filter into the system. I mean, we had to give parents information packs, give them, you know, some ideas to how prevent would affect or how it would uh, affect their children. and it, you could see it with the children because if they had a trip, for example, to Lebanon, um, mm. they would avoid discussing it for fear of anyone thinking something bad about it because of Hezbollah, which is obviously based there. So things like that, it really did filter into how it is that they live their daily lives. And this is, I mean, these are kids. They shouldn't have to worry about these things, you know? Well, that's one of the key things, isn't it? Because probably our generation doesn't understand how much 
of an issue this is creating, what a seed it's sowing, because yeah. maybe we were teenagers or young adults by the time this strategy came in. But now, for young children that, that age, primary school children, t- teenagers in high school, that they have been brought up in that kind of environment of not trusting the society they live in, that's yeah. going to really cause profound uh, impact, I think, in society, yeah. in, a, in a community that's already isolated in many ways. I um, think even just some of the stories that we've seen, like you, you have, you know, the kid who said he lived in a terrorist house when he was saying a terrorist, terrorist house, house in and that, you know, that he got he got reported. You have people talking about eco terrorism. Um, with regards to Greenpeace and whatever else, and and that kid got reported. Another kid wearing a Palestine uh, badge yeah. or a lapel or whatever, and again that kid got reported. And it's a bit scary because I don't remember ever having stories like this growing up. Yeah. Um, I don't consider myself to be that old, but I just don't remember anything like this when you know in our day essentially. Mm. I feel weird saying our day because you know when. <laughs> We're not old, but um, it's changed. The, the climate has really, really changed over the last few years, and it's just pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, Miqdad Versi picked this up on the 20th of October when he wrote for The Guardian. He spoke about, you know, why the community is failing, why this whole prevent thing is failing, and he picks up on how the former education secretary, Nikki Morgan, um, said that, you know, converting to Christianity is, of course, not a sign of radicalization, while converting to Islam is. Um, or when he picked up on Ofsted investigating the case of the hidden Quran in a child's bedroom. So it's things like that, picking out on the fact that it's it's children, it's quite specific to a certain religion. Um, but the thing is, it, it's not just that. It is filtering into other forms, uh, other institutions, other religions and things like that. Just to broaden the, the discussion about education to the other end, because we've talked about small children, I always use the example, and you guys might remember um, Dr Rizwan Sabir, who I've spoken to and interviewed in depth about this topic. So he was a PhD student at the University of Nottingham, we're talking about 2008. Mm-hmm. His specialism was counter-terrorism. He was studying counter-terrorism. He downloaded the Al-Qaeda handbook as a part of his PhD thesis. He was arrested, he was put into, uh, he was held for a week. In the end, he took it through the courts and he did get £20,000 compensation. Mm. But to me, that's the crux of the matter. The point is that if he was a white secular atheist, I can guarantee you he wouldn't he would have downloaded the same thing and he wouldn't have been arrested the fact that he was Asian and Muslim led to that and that's really problematic because what McDad's talking about is tackling terrorism from the from inside the community if there is an issue then it needs to be discussed people need to find solutions we need to be able to talk about it mm-hmm. so if from one end young people are fearful of discussing it and from the other end experts academics I mean he's uh, he's a university lecturer he has a PhD the debate when debate is stifled in that sense, we are we are not going to find a solution because we can't talk. Yeah, I, I guess that would also open another can of words entirely on freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and and it, it is a thing. Like as you said that you know the fact that kids can't talk about their holidays to Lebanon, yeah, um, out of fear of of getting reported or you know maybe their parents have told them you know even though you're in a Muslim school, Muslim environment, don't talk about yeah. this. That's troubling. Yeah. I mean, the same issue has filtered into universities, as you said. So um, Professor Louise, uh, sorry, Louise Richardson from uh, Oxford University said that the problem is, is that there are creating safe spaces, so to speak, at universities whereby people can't discuss these things. And it's stifling freedom of expression, as you said. And the issue is that people should be able to discuss these things in a university climate, in an educational climate, so that they're aware of how to combat these things, how to discuss these things. Um, so that's really something that we, you know, need to consider, need to think about, and how it affects uh, mm-hmm. our community and our society. Another one, 
that is really filtering into my society and our society and it's really uh, annoying me so to speak uh united nations <laughs> so yes wonder woman has been made the un <sighs> gender equality ambassador thoughts guys <sighs> just size all around <laughs> well the issue is it's, I mean it, it spots a lot of outrage um, the UN staff themselves have said that it's a joke you know she's a fictional character she's a DC creation you know but why is it that I mean do we not have any women in the world <laughs> I just wanted to be in that meeting where just they were discussing this and the people in there left their brains at the door to decide that was actually a good idea <laughs> I can't <laughs> somebody, um, I, I posted this story on my Facebook and somebody said, well, we're living in a cartoon these days. It's all like, a com- it, the whole thing is comical. But I, with, with Donald Trump, I think everyone's just like gotten used to this feeling of like, they don't know whether to laugh or have utter despair. Like, that's how I feel about this story. Yeah. I, it was nonsense. Did, did you guys watch the video? I, I saw, I saw it the... It was nonsensical. It was ridiculous. I mean, I think there was, a, there was a, a petition signed by almost a thousand individuals that worked at the UN, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And that was obviously completely ignored. And it, it, it's just, it's really baffling. I mean, you know, we have actual real live women who are who are doing amazing things in the world that could be you know, ambassadors for gender equality, but we've gone for a fictional character. I'm not sure where the thinking was behind that. Not just that, it's not any kind of fictional character. It's, let's just look at how how Wonder Woman is is portrayed. So if we pick out from the petition, um, she was described as a fictional character who is large-breasted, a white woman of impossible proportions, scantily clad in shimmery, thigh-bearing bodysuits, with an American flag motif and knee-high boots, and is the epitome of a pin-up girl. What kind of image are we giving our kids? Uh, you know, it's become more acceptable to kind of idolize these figures rather than looking at real women making real difference and real change in the world. I mean, it was just, it was like vomit inducing watching this, honestly, because it was the Under Secretary General for the UN, I mean, a serious woman herself, I think her name's Christina Gallick, and she was like standing there in the United Nations and she was like, we're delighted to announce that <laughs> Wonder Woman, and then there was a bunch of Hollywood um, like uh, actresses yeah. and they were like waving like it was the red carpet and then they had a bunch of young girls and they all had these Wonder Woman t-shirts on and they had little little tiaras and I was just in shock but really that's on one level on you know maybe on the feminist argument or whatever but this is the United Nations again you've put this is an American white uh, woman a western paradigm and we've seen this I mean there's there's critique there at the UN anyway we see this when in politics but I mean that they actually thought this was a good idea I mean mean, it just baffles the mind doesn't it yeah I, I don't I don't get it. I mean, but the good thing is is there has been some kind of rhetoric from, from people in the UN. So uh, UN advisor Anne-Marie Goetz tweeted, it's disgusting yeah. that the UN substitutes sexualized fakes for a real woman leader. And then uh, the representative for Lithuania says there should be plenty of real-life women and girls to inspire the rest of us. Well, and well they I'm turned their backs, didn't they? A whole bunch of them, yeah. didn't they, at the, at the ceremony? Uh, for actually, I did want to ask you, because uh, before when we first saw this story, you, you mentioned that you had something on a very kind of comic book level where you thought there was an alternative female hero. And I want to hear about this because we didn't get to discuss it and I want to hear about it now. All right, so um, if we're going to pick DC or Marvel, personally, I would pick Marvel. Um, And if we're going to go for... Can I just say I'm entirely indifferent, Nargis? I'm not not a comic book fan, (laughs) but in general, I think we should have a real life 
Okay. There's enough Definitely real life real women. Life. No, I'm with so it's like you. an ins- I think what she's pointing at is an insult beyond an insult. Yeah, Not yeah, only yeah. did yes. they choose a <laughs> comic, exactly. they chose the wrong comic. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> if we're going to go for fictional characters and a comic book of all, um, Marvel, they have this spectacular series called Miss Marvel by uh, G. Willow Wilson. So what it does is it follows the life of a young Pakistani Muslim American living in New Jersey and how it is that she saves the world. So very typical of the, you know, the Marvel DC comic theme but um she she has real problems she has real issues she discusses you know how it is she's going to consolidate religion and school and and saving the world and everything put together so i mean if we're going to pick someone let's pick someone who's actually inspirational i mean she's won plenty of awards from 2014 since it came out or 15 mm-hmm. if i'm not mistaken i mean why not if we're going to go for something like that pick someone who's worth it yeah it was misjudged on every level wasn't it and also really on the level of i, I mean she, uh, from what I understand, this is a post-war... She's a post kind of post-war character, doesn't she? Yeah. She's been around 70, 75 years. She says a lot about the time we're living in now, doesn't it? I just think it's just misguided. And again, this this concept that women are... We have to be wonder women. We have to do everything. We have to be able to do everything. And it's now so unattainable. I mean, it's been three generations we've been discussing how we can do it all and what's realistic. And now you've made it so unattainable that we actually need to be... We need to be fictional before we can be adequate yeah and i think that is really i mean i don't know whether to laugh or cry at this story it, it, <laughs> i just it, really it, i just it, like you're it right. it really is a very scary when you put it like that it's, it's a very scary <laughs> it's notion terrible. very so. very bad united nations i know yeah. that's <laughs> how i'm ending my that segment <laughs> bad UN. so um yeah since we're looking at this idea of, of looking back 70 years and nostalgia and things like that the third topic that we really wanted to reflect on is the ethics of looking after our elderly um and are we actually failing to do so within our own communities So um, I posted out an article myself on the 23rd of October, where uh, in it I discuss the issue of, you know, our elderly, how are we looking for them, etc. I mean, at my last job I used to drive by an elderly home, Mm. and every time I would, it was just, something inside me would break every time, because they have pictures of elderly, and they're smiling with their grandkids and whatever, and I'm like, do we really look after them? Mm. Do we go to visit them? Do we actually care? So that's the question that I really wanted to kind of address. I mean... Yeah, what are your thoughts? I think it's it's one of those things where, unfortunately, in, in the UK, where you know we all live and we've all been brought up, um, there is a bit of an issue when it comes to the elderly where people just decide that after a certain time they don't want to look after their parents anymore or just the elderly in their family. They kind of ship them out to, to a care home yeah. and that's it. And it's like, you know, Christmas, they might go and visit them every now and then. I'm, I'm massively stereotyping and generalizing here. But... I've seen in in some of the you know some of the Muslim communities like a you know one of the local mosques that I attend um, regularly on, on a Wednesday they have a senior citizens program and they they kind of all get together they have talks that are obviously relevant to their age bracket um, they have food where they get to come together socialize eat as well um, and they have trips as well so they go on date trip on day trips and they sometimes go abroad as well for like a week and it's quite nice having that and actually having them as an integral part of the community because often it's just a case of right you know once you've passed that kind of 50 year old mark you're slowly becoming less and less useful to society and and, and that's that really yeah. um, and I, I think it is important, and you know, I, I applaud you for writing that piece as well, just because it's something that we don't really talk about. It's an inconvenient 
issue that kind of is just underlying in our society. Yeah, but it is an issue. I mean, if you look at the stats, Jeremy Hunt uh, posted something out for the National Children and Adult Services Conference. He said approximately 800,000 people in England were chronically lonely. And I, just, just the wording alone, chronically mm. lonely. You know, this is their own description of how they live their lives. And that's just one of them. Five million people say that television is their main form of company. And then that there's over 112,000 um, cases of alleged abuse at care homes. So mm. really, you know, people being parked in care homes, just for me personally, it's something that just doesn't, doesn't flow. I mean, I think there are obviously, there's some cultural differences, isn't there, I think. Um, but we all live in Britain. I think one of the issues here is, A, it's an ageing population. Mm. Anyway, this country is. And yeah. our lifestyles... There are some cultural differences, but at the end of the day, we're all stuck in that lifestyle. We're so busy, houses are expensive, we live far away from each other. That community cohesion that there once was, that maybe a grandparent and a parent and a granddaughter or whatever might be living at least in similar areas, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of issues. I, I went a, a couple of months ago to do a documentary about this and I, I spent the day with um, an organisation called DAGE. I know they're in Deptford, but um, I can't remember exactly what it stands for. But um, they're a charity shop and they have a coffee shop where people, these elderly people can come in, pop in and have tea and coffees and socialise. And one of their main complaints is that they were lonely. And the other big thing they said to me was that they don't, they feel like they've been forgotten in society. And it's not just by the population, like little things that we don't think about because we're tech savvy. One of them was saying, well, now you get the best deals for your electricity and other deals, it's the best deals are online for your phone and whatever. We don't know how to access the internet. And the organisers were talking, uh, the organisers of this charity shop were talking about this. They said, not only are there a massive financial burden on elderly people, a lot of them have to choose between eating and heating through the winter months. A lot of them pass away because of the cold in the winter months. They, They don't have, they haven't kept up with technology and there's nobody to help them to access it. And I think that's... One, and they were so they were so personable these women but you, it was very sad in a way what they were saying they did really genuinely feel forgotten yeah and we don't realize little things like we walk walk rush rush rushing on the street they can't they're not as they can't physically walk as fast as us or do things as quickly as we can yeah definitely I mean one other thing is also Islamically I mean in the Quran it says if, if either of your parents re- reach an old age to kind of pray for 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 God to send mercy upon them mm. but then are we showing mercy ourselves so you know just, just a few quick tips you know help them with technology and you know spend some time with them sometimes all they want is company they just mm. want to have a conversation mm. and the wealth that we can pick up from the, the elder people I think is just something that we've we've forgotten if you really want to learn from the past and possibly change our future I think that's where it is that we should uh, be turning to well um yeah thank you for tuning in today we look forward to your thoughts and feedback and hopefully some suggestions for our next topics um you can do so by emailing us on editor at the muslimvibe.com don't forget to connect with us on facebook twitter instagram and by subscribing to our next podcast so until next time assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah